you know, just the way that we live our lives to be less dependent on packaging. It didn't, it didn't always used to be this way, right? It, in fact, very recent history, there wasn't nearly as much waste involved with an average person's day-to-day -day life. So trying to think about Hello, hello, everybody. My name is David Goldberg. My name is Amy Patterson. And this is The Inconvenient Truths of Recycling, where we are going to be talking about, well, recycling. But specifically, what is recyclable? It's a very nebulous topic, right? Not, ne not everybody knows what is recyclable and what isn't. We're going to be talking about recycling at Emory, our college campus, and in the broader US as well. And then finally, we're going to be talking about how various companies are taking advantage of consumer trends towards being more eco-conscious and how companies are selling and appealing to that. So, Amy, I, I've, got a, I've got a really stupid question. I mean, we're doing this entire podcast, but... What is recyclable? I mean, I'm the type of person that, you know, I pick up my entire trash bag with, with my cans, my bottles, my paper towels in it, and I throw it all in the trash. But, you know, I don't think I really know what's recyclable or else maybe I would try a little bit harder. So what is recyclable? And that's a great question because I feel like so many people around the U.S. don't know what is recyclable. And that is one of the main problems with recycling is that all these recyclable materials are being thrown in the trash when they could be being reused to create these new products and reduce our overall pollution rate. Um, so things that are recyclable vary from place to place. It's very different, but in general, um, things like plastics, textiles, paper, cardboard, um, almost everything except select things like light bulbs and batteries, styrofoam, e-waste, aerosol cans, and things like that. Um, but not all recycling is made the same. Uh, materials are very different from each other. For example, like plastics and cardboard are extremely different materials, different chemical structures, um, which leads to different levels of recycling, different ways that can be used further down the line. But there's a select number of times that these recyclables can actually be recycled. For example, plastic can only be recycled a few number of times before it gets basically unusable because every time plastic is recycled, it becomes more and more flimsy. And since we don't want flimsy plastic products, it gets tossed in the landfill. That makes sense. I mean, hell, I don't want any flimsy plastic, right? Who does? But then what I'm getting is, you know, besides my light bulbs, besides my uh, my aerosol cans, you know, isn't everything recyclable then? I'm, I'm confused. So I should just continue throwing everything in the recycling bin instead of the trash. Well, it's everything that is recyclable still needs to be sorted, which is an important component of this recycling process. When you toss all your things in a recycling bin without sorting them, it actually leaves it up to the recycling plants um, to do that process for you, which is, you know, one person doing that for their recycling versus one person doing that for everybody's recycling is extremely less efficient than uh, people just sorting their trash. But it is, it does come with a caveat because every different place, different states have different regulations for recycling. So people don't necessarily know what's recyclable in their state, which leads to people throwing things that are recyclable in the trash and throwing the things that, things that aren't recyclable in the recycling bin. That's really interesting, Amy. And our first podcast guest, we're going to be talking a lot about the economics of it and why things differ from place to place and region to region with what is and what isn't recyclable. 
So today we are very excited to be here with Dr. Carolyn Keough to talk about the economics of recycling. She has a bachelor's in science from Emory University in the environmental sciences and also received her doctorate in ecology at the University of Georgia. She's dedicated her research to studying disease ecology, marine ecology, and invasive species ecology. So let's welcome Dr. Keough. Thank you, Amy. Tell us what a day in your life at Emory University looks like as a professor. Yeah, I'm really fortunate. I'm in a teaching-focused faculty position, um, and they hired me specifically when they needed someone to teach field-based courses. So um, today, for example, I was out in Lullwater with students, and we learned about some invasive plants uh, in the Lullwater forest and did a little service activity and then got to got to do some birding and think about community ecology across forest layers, which was pretty fun. I wish every day was like that. That's not every day, but you know, that's a pretty good yeah, one. Yeah, no, it's great when you can get out in the field and actually experience what you're teaching. And because you're such a pivotal member of the environmental science community here at Emory, do you personally believe that environmental pollution itself is a problem? Sure. Yeah. The way that our society is set up right now, there aren't really good systems in place to make sure that we're thinking about the resources we're using to make stuff. And then we're thinking about the end of the life of all the different things that we make. So yeah, certainly um, certainly things that get produced as a, a product of our current industrial technical lives. Um, there's a, a sort of an open-ended system in place that doesn't really doesn't do a good job of making sure that we're closing the loop. Right, right. Exactly. We're ending up with like a lot of accumulation in like landfills. I mean, um, a lot of just waste products in general. Um, who do you think is to blame for the environment's current state um, with all these waste products that are ending up just in the natural environment? <laughs> well, we probably have a lot of um, a lot of consumer awareness and policy work that needs to happen to um, to close some of those loops, right? And uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's probably the um, industries are going to need to have somebody tell them to take those things into 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 account and figure out a way to not have these negative externalities, uh, as it were, uh, be such a huge part of the economy. And I think that, you know, I don't think there's any harmful intent on anyone's part with all that stuff, but certainly, you know, it, I guess it's everyone's responsibility as a consumer to try to be aware of some of those externalities and to think about ways that we cannot be producing and throwing away things the exact same way in 2022 that we were 50 or 100 years ago. Um, now that we have such a huge population and a large number of products and a, a diminishing space for waste to go um, and a greater awareness of all the ways that the proliferations of chemicals and products and microfibers and things, you know, sort of make it out beyond even our landfills and into the broader environment. So yeah, certainly, you know, we teach a lot of sort of systems thinking in ecology classes. And I think that's, that comes into play really strongly with thinking about waste systems, you know, um, trying to uh, keep an eye on where all of the the inputs and the, the outputs are for all these processes. Um, it's something that I think, you know, collectively as a society, we've got to think about yeah, definitely. And and in talking about closing all these loops, like closing the waste process and production loop, uh, do you think that recycling would be a viable way to do that? And do you think that people should recycle more in order to do that closing of a loop? 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, it's interesting. So recycling is a big term, right? And it, you know, it, it doesn't, I don't think it always means what we think that it means. At least like I, as a, as somebody who is, you know, member of modern society and I go buy things at the grocery store and then I put my uh, milk jug in the recycling bin. And when I think of recycling in that context as a consumer, I usually think, oh, okay, good. This is going to be used again. Um, and I know now as somebody who's who's visited recycling centers and, you know, kind of and read a little bit more about it, that that's ne- not necessarily the case, right? That there are a lot of inefficiencies in having recycling be set up as a, a market system that's not mandatory. And there's sort of a limited amount that recycling itself can do in terms of really reducing the amount of waste that's created. Um, the recycling center folks will tell you that source reduction is another big part of the equation for making sure that uh, we're not just creating new plastics all the time, for example. But I certainly think that recycling is a huge part of the picture. And I think that if we had a more efficient and a more organized way to do it, um, if our society here in the U.S. was more amenable to that kind of thing, that would certainly make it easier for potential end users of those, um, you know, plastic bottles and things to have a better idea what they were going to what they were going to have to work with and what they could do with it. Yeah, that kind of perfectly segues into my next question. Um, like through your experiences of like of walking through recycling plants and um, doing these readings, what do you what does recycling look like for you? Speaking on this fairly naively, just having taken students to recycling facilities at a municipal level back when I was at the University of Georgia. Um, the, in that case, it's not that it's not that we were going to a recycling plant per se that was actually taking materials and turning them into new usable things. Um, in that case. It was really just the you know the the municipal organization that picks up the bins off the sidewalk uh, has to take all of those materials somewhere and sort them, and they got sorted into you know um, bales of cardboard, for example, or bales of milk jugs, or a bunch of stuff that people had put in the recycling that couldn't actually be recycled, or the aluminum got you know put into one bin and the steel into something else. And it's really a, a sorting facility more than a recycling facility, right? So then you're like, well, okay, well, what's going to happen with all this stuff that's been sorted and bailed and um, put into these different piles? And I think that was uh, the most illuminating part of that for me was understanding that those the, the ultimate destination of those bales of plastic or bales of cardboard is completely dependent on whether you know, somebody wants to buy that stuff and try to reuse it, right? So the recycling companies or the the groups that are doing that sorting are just selling these materials to potential users. And for some materials, there's not, there aren't facilities in the U.S. It doesn't seem like, I don't know if there are any, there at very least aren't any in Georgia or the Southeast that um, recycle plastic, right? So all of the plastic that gets put in the recycling gets shipped overseas. And if the overseas markets in China, for example, decide that they don't need additional plastics um, to be reused or that it's cheaper to make new plastics or that shipping is expensive, shipping certainly is at least expensive from a, a carbon emissions perspective, then there's not there's not a market for that. And that plastic doesn't go anywhere, right? It ends up in the landfill. The one thing that was really encouraging to me from the facilities that we took students to um, in Athens, Georgia, was that uh, it turns out that the aluminum recycling does have facilities in the Southeast where if you pick up a you know a can of Coke off the shelf at a, at a grocery store and throw it in the recycling bin a week later, it'll end up back on the shelf as a new can within 60 days or something really short like that, right? So it can be incredibly efficient if there's actually a local producer that says, yeah, give me your aluminum. So yeah, it, you know, 
seems like there's a lot of potential if all the all the pieces are in place to actually use the materials and to get them back out into into the world. But that's certainly not true for everything. It's you know it's encouraging that it's true for cans, but kind of bad news from the from the plastics perspective. Yeah, definitely. So do you think that producing more or developing more local uh, recycling plants would be a solution to some of these problems in recycling? Honestly, I don't know. (laughs) Being not a materials person or a chemist, I don't know what the potential is for a lot of the things that we use. Um, These days, you know, the, the kinds of plastics that we interact with, polystyrene and all these other things, I don't know whether or not those can efficiently be turned into something new without a really high energy cost or a high chemical cost. And so, you know, whether or not uh, having more recycling really solves the problem, I think it really depends on the material. And I don't know enough to, to know which ones that's a viable idea, you know, option for. But, you know, it does certainly seem like somebody's got to be looking at that, right? And saying, well, if something can't be recycled and it can't be composted, then maybe we should really think hard about whether it should be produced and used in the first place. Yeah. And if something isn't recyclable, like, you know, like majority of the products we're purchasing these days, who do you think, who do you think in like the supply chain is at fault for that? Um, well, I don't think we have policies in place or public awareness in place to force industries to to take the the end of the life of their product and its packaging into account. Ultimately, my opinion, right, is that it, it should be on the folks that are selling a product and, and making money off of that product to have something in place that gives the the product and its packaging a way to be responsibly disposed of or responsibly recycled. But the way that we operate uh, in general, um, unless there's a, an economic incentive in place for that, it really requires a usually a top-down decision, which itself then usually requires a ground-up demand. So my hope is that, and it sounds like you're thinking about this by having a podcast about it, right? That there's a growing awareness that something's got to change in the way that we make and use and dispose of things. And that maybe that demand for taking the entire life of a life, life cycle of a product into account is something that needs to be on the immediate term horizon. In talking about uh, how it ideally should come from policymakers, but it's hard for incentives to be put in place for companies to make recyclable products. If you were the policymaker, you were the dictator for the day, what would you <laughs> do to make recycling better? Um, well, I would probably, I, I love this idea, by the way. Um, I would love to be, you know, in charge of fixing recycling systems for a day. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, having, you know, a reduction in the allowable use of products for which there's not a viable recycling option. So that would be under the category of source reduction. Um, Incentives in place for businesses to use, to recycle and to use recycled materials. Localized systems for doing that so that we don't have to send things, you know, really far away in order to see them back on the shelves. So if there's, if there are ways to responsibly and without creating a bunch of toxic secondary byproducts. But, you know, at the end of the day, the source reduction is the biggest, I think, part of the puzzle and and the place where we get the biggest bang for the buck, right? It reduces the amount of mining and resource extraction that's used. It hopefully reduces the amount of resources that need to be consumed to, to create new stuff and then to recycle that stuff. So, you know, I'd love to see the <laughs> some kind of proliferation of more permanent materials for packaging and also for, you know, just 
the way that we live our lives to be less dependent on packaging. It didn't, it didn't always used to be this way, right? It, in fact, very recent history, there wasn't nearly as much waste involved with an average person's day-to-day life. So trying to think about, well, how do we get back to not having every cracker in its own wrapper? The other thing I'll say is that, you know, there are a lot of countries that do a way better job than we do in the U.S. with asking citizens to sort their their materials, their recycling, their potential recycling to make it more economically feasible for recycling downstream users to actually not have a whole bunch of the stuff they don't want mixed in with the stuff that they do want. So if we had a little bit more active participation from people to say, yeah, let's you know, peel the label off the bottle before we put the bottle itself into the bin. That kind of thing happens in other countries and it doesn't happen in the U.S. So I think there are some some local level, consumer level things that would probably help the cause. But yeah, you know, I'll keep my fingers crossed that we'll move toward a um, a less resource intensive way of living our lives and uh, and that we'll get some incentives in place that really do some meaningful source reduction, make it easier for us to all um, be modern humans without relying so strongly on disposable things. Yeah. And other than um, being more attuned to how you're sorting, you're recycling, what message uh, do you have for people um, that are listening to make their recycling better or to make the whole process more efficient, like small things that they could do? <laughs> Well, uh, if you have a choice to buy a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke, buying a can in the Southeast is more efficient as long as you throw the can into the recycling because you know that we've got systems in place to let that can be used again. Um, I think uh, Emory does a really good job of trying to supply people with reusable things, you know, cutlery and and um, water bottles and things like that to kind of reduce the, the demand that we at a really local level put put on things. And I'll I'll shout out the student organization that's the Plastic Free Emory Initiative that's trying really hard to reduce single-use plastic use on campus, has done an amazing job of uh, catalyzing sort of some university-wide work on that, which is really great. I think we all know this, right? But as customers or consumers, we're making, we're kind of voting with our dollars all the time. So if there are companies doing good things in terms of reducing their their footprint, their waste footprint, then, you know, it's never, never a bad idea to consider supporting them with your purchasing. They have a lot of, a lot of power in that way. And so I I guess I'd just encourage people to, um, to remember that, right. Remember that the choices that you make or the, the letters that you write might, might write to companies to say, Hey, I wish you did this differently. Those matter. Um, And yeah, hopefully this raising raising our consciousness about this, like you're doing here, Amy, is a a great step forward. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. That's actually all the questions that I have um, today. So that was a a great place to leave off. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for sitting down. I really appreciate it. Um, It was a pleasure having you be a part of this conversation. Um, I certainly learned a lot from you. um, And I'm sure that everybody listening did as well. Just thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your work. Wow, that was really insightful. That was that was absolutely wonderful by Dr. Keo. I didn't realize that our plastics are so dependent on an international supply chain that we in the U.S. and even you know this this plastic bottle I'm holding in my hands could be sent all the way to China just to be recycled. It it really it's it's insane actually. And it really goes to show how ineffective our current recycling process is. It really depends on whether or not companies want our recyclable materials or if they want to do something with those recyclables. If people don't want to do things, then 
our recyclables end up sitting in warehouses or going straight to the landfill, and our efforts were essentially for nothing. Although global recycling, the global recycling process is not efficient as it could be, David and I are very fortunate to go to Emory University that is highly sustainable. Um, they place a heavy emphasis on recycling and diverting the waste from landfills. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, David? Yeah, so through Emory University, there's a lot of different programs dedicated to sustainability. For example, we have something called the OSI, or the Office for Sustainability Initiative, which is in charge of educating students and the broader Emory community about what it means to be sustainable, what it looks like to live sustainably, and how to best recycle. And we also have a program on our campus called Emory Recycles, which is the main recycling program. And Emory Recycles accepts plastics, metal cans, glass, mixed paper, and cardboard. And it specifically encourages students to sort through their waste before it gets recycled. Uh, and I'll just say, my bad, guys. Um, and from there, each material is then picked up by various different recycling local facilities. So we don't tend to send our, our, uh, our recycling to China. And the goal of all this is to, of course, divert our waste from landfills and to begin to upcycle our products. Emory's 2025 goal is a 95% diversion rate. And hopefully, in the long term, to divert all municipal landfill waste that could have been saved to recycling plants. But of course, the current rate as of at least 2021 is only 56.1%, a little bit far off from that 95% goal. Back in 2021, Emory University also signed the Break Free from the Plastic Pledge, which was aimed to reduce the consumption of single-use plastics university-wide by 2025. So recycling at Emory is a great example or a blueprint of how efficient recycling process could be. Picking up recyclables to go to local facilities instead of shipping them overseas. Um, having people sort their own waste are both great examples of what could be implemented globally. But I'm kind of getting that that's probably not how the U.S. works, huh? The U.S. is still getting there. Uh, right now, still 94 million tons of municipal solid waste are recycled, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually equivalent to only 32.1% of materials that are actually recycled. And while well, the total generation of municipal solid waste in 2018 was 292.4 million tons, and that's 4.9 pounds per person per day, the average household in the U.S. throws away 13,000 separate pieces of paper each year. And most of these come from, well, thanks to the pandemic, packaging, junk mail, which can all be recycled, but frequently isn't. And about one third of an average dump, a third, is made up of this packaging material. It really begs, what's, what's the cost of all of this? The cost is really not as much as you would think. It's actually cheaper to recycle than it is to produce trash. Um, it costs $30 per ton to recycle trash, $50 to send it to the landfill, and $65 to $70 to incinerate it. So in the long run, we're essentially saving money by recycling. Not only saving our planet, but saving money too. And who doesn't love that? So Amy, what I'm getting is, is that, well, Recycling plants can certainly do a lot more. We as the end consumer can do a lot more in ensuring that we sort our, through our waste properly. But I wanna double back on this idea that we talked about earlier, this idea of closing the plastic tap. Surely with all of this renewed interest in 
um, being sustainable. Companies must be taking this seriously and doing a good job, right? And that's the sad thing is that they're actually not. They're taking this new interest in being sustainable and kind of taking advantage of people because of it. I heard of this example by Hefty Recycling Bags where their bags claim that they can handle all types of recyclables when the bag itself is actually not recyclable, which is super counterintuitive and actually contaminates recyclables. So you're putting all this effort into sorting and recycling into these different Hefty bags that you think are safe to be recycled, but actually the bag and all of its content actually just ends up in the landfill, which is super unfortunate. That's terrible. I, I heard about a similar example actually with Starbucks and their claim and their advertisement says that strawless lids are better, right? That we're gonna do away with all of the plastic straws and that these lids are made of recyclable, clean plastic. But ironically, those new lids actually use more plastic than the old lid and straw combined and only 9% of the world's plastic is recycled, which means that the vast majority of those lids are going to end up in landfills with even more plastic than the straw and lid before. Wow, only 9%. I just wanna reiterate that because that is truly insane. Um, and this really comes from all the single-use plastics that we do use on our day-to-day -day basis. Right now, David's holding a plastic water bottle with this beautiful depiction of nature and this mountain on it. Um, with eco-friendly packaging, but despite the eco-friendly packaging, these are still single-use plastics. We use them once, we throw them away, and we never think about them again. We never think about where they go um, and what they become, and only 9% actually make it to be recycled into a new material. And as with all things, right, there is going to be more and more institutional oversight, right? And many companies and institutions pledge things like zero waste or 100 recyclability by 2050, 2015, 2025, but they never lay out a tangible or concrete plan to actually accomplish these goals. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has green guides to try to set rules for green marketing, but these rules are rather flimsy and they're not really enforced leaving companies to really market as they please. So what can we do? I know it's hard to hear about recycling and all the problems that are involved with this process from like a bird's eye view where it's like, what can I do? What changes can I make to benefit this process? And there are some things that you can do. You can sort materials. You can be very conscious about where you're putting your paper, your plastic, your cardboard, and research what's recyclable in your state so that you are helping out those recycling plants with their sorting processes. And remember those companies from earlier, the ones that lay out all of these ambitious goals but have no intention but to advertise about them? Don't support them. Boycott them. Spread awareness among your friends that these companies are doing something that is amoral and don't buy their products. You can also vote for politicians that support the expansion and subsidization of recycling facilities. So that way we can expand what is recyclable in our areas and we can recycle more locally without shipping it across the seas. And that's all we have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you guys learned a little something about recycling. And we want to give credit where credit is due. So this podcast was produced by Kevin Sun, edited by Dishel Tao Harris, Music by my good friend at USC, James Sinigalianu. Thank you so much. Cover art by Jonathan Jung. And a thank you to 
Dr. Carolyn Keough, and a very special thanks to Dr. Christopher Merlin. Thanks for listening. This is David Goldberg and Amy Patterson. And have a wonderful day.